Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. We continue in this very lengthy session of the beginnings when all things began, time began, the world began, all of this in an instant before you and I were even a twinkling in our parents' eye. <laughs> an eternity past that we can't really fathom that becomes the hope of our lives. So as we look in chapter 4 today, we are going to see a radical departure from the experience that was known in all of chapters 1 through 3, where God powerfully and majestically creates all the universe. He sets a special, special focus on a small planet called Earth. He creates a world full of beauty and wonder. He caps it off at the crown jewel of his creation in creating mankind. He creates mankind to enjoy and rule over the world that he has made. He creates a very special place called the garden, and he puts Adam and Eve there to have an intimate fellowship with him and a harmonious life together. He blesses them with every provision they could ever want or ever need. He visits with them regularly. And in this process, he only has a single prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in this garden paradise, they forgot the word of God and instead believed the word of the serpent, the liar. And they have been expelled from the garden. They've been told of the difficulty and hardship that they would encounter outside of the garden in the new lives that they would live. But they are also told of the grace that would enable them to continue to live and still be loved and cared for by this great God who has created everything they've ever known and seen it with eyes that we can't even begin to imagine in this first-hand experience. So now we'll begin to look at this new life outside the garden as we look at the first family. So there are a number of firsts in this chapter. There is the first birth, which then constitutes the first family. The first sibling follows soon after with the birth of Abel. There are the first offerings. There's the first opportunity for vengeance. There's the first act of worship after the fall. There's the first expression of hypocrisy, the first act of self-righteousness. There is the first family disaster. There is the first crime the murder of Abel, Cain's brother. So flowing out of the fall of man in the garden, this seemingly innocuous prohibition against a single command, out of the flow of sin in the garden, we will see how the flow of sin begins to permeate every single facet of human life forever and forever until God pulls the plug on earth and ends this experience that we know or until we go home, we will still live in a world fully permeated by the impact of sin. Let's read together Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Ideally, we would go all the way through the end of this section of verse 16, but uh, we're not going to do that. 
<laughs> I've learned my lesson. I've taken my lumps. But there's just so much in here. So we're going to focus on verses 1 through 8. We'll review that a little bit next week and then pick up the remaining part of this section. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So we look at this first family. We are told about how much time actually passes from the expulsion of, from the garden to this point in their history, but it is probably a very, very short amount of time. And it doesn't take a genius to see that it didn't take very long for this single violation of the prohibition, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to have a, an incredibly significant impact in the lives of Adam and Eve, and then throughout all of mankind for all of history. So the first part we're going to see in our three-point outline here is grace realized. So verse 1 says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So the consequence of sin that was committed in the garden was death. And yet God extended grace to Adam and Eve in that they did not die immediately. They didn't die physically immediately. There was an immediate spiritual separation. There was a spiritual death that was experienced. But physical death was not experienced. It was, however, set in motion. So here the grace of God is realized in that Eve gives birth to Cain. So if you remember back in our study in Genesis 3.20, Adam gave to Eve the name, gave, gave to Eve her name, which is the mother of all living, Zoe. And in giving this name, Adam confesses his belief in the grace of God that he would fulfill the promise to them given through the punishment, and therefore stand behind what was recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1. God created the male and female, blessed them, and said, Be fruitful and multiply, rule over the earth, and subdue it. So grace is realized in that God has extended this gift to Adam and Eve to bring forth life. She is, in fact, the mother of all the living. And so like Adam, who gave to Eve this name, the mother of all living, Eve also expresses faith in God's grace as she says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So she acknowledges that God is the one who has enabled her 
to have this child. There's a lot of wordplay in here, and I'm not going to dissect that because of the amount of time it would take to bring that out. But the first birth recorded in the Bible is consistent with all of with all that remains in Scripture, as it attributes conception and the giving of life as a unique work of God and is evidence of His blessing. For example, we would read in Psalm 127, 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And likewise, in Psalm 139, 13, For you formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. So Eve recognizes that the gift of this child has only been accomplished with the help of the Lord, although there is a part of a wordplay where she has gotten this child child on her own, it is also phrased in such a way that it is dependent upon the grace of God to enable her to have this gift given to her. So from the beginning of God's plan for the human family, procreation is the divine human means whereby the man and the woman might achieve the dominion that God has envisioned for them, as he stated to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So although it requires the involvement of Adam and Eve, it is also divinely given to them by God as his plan to fulfill the mission of filling the earth and then subduing it. So the motif that is begun here, which was hinted at in the creation of all vegetation with the seed, the motif of children or seed dominates Genesis and is critical to later Israel's understanding of its own destiny as it is interpreted through the lives of the patriarchs. So what was hinted at in the creation of vegetation and seeds propagating the continuation of the vegetation, it is hinted at in the punishment or the curse given to Adam and Eve in the battle between the serpent seed and the woman's seed is now here put into action with the giving of life through the seed of the woman in Cain and then also in the seed of Abel. Now we're going to spend a lot more time dissecting that and breaking that down in the next half with the life of Cain and what comes to him as a result of his rebellion and his murder of his brother Abel. So Eve calls Cain a man-child, but that does not mean that Cain was born as an adult, but was born as a baby who would become a man through the grace of God extended to her. Again, the term man-child is a play on word, and it comes from Adam, Ish, and this man-child coming from Adam and Eve, and I forget how that is actually pronounced. And so it's a wordplay on Cain coming from the man and then following in his footsteps as a tiller of the ground. But it is also this gift of God, the gift of God's grace extended to her, this man-child that has come by the grace of God. So again, we'll look at Cain in more detail next time. So verse 2a says, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. So there's no timeline provided between the birth of Cain and the birth of Abel. Sometime after Cain is born, Abel comes along. Some suggest that Abel and Cain are actually twins, but there's absolutely nothing in the text or in the book of Genesis that would support such a conclusion. So, 
By the way, Genesis 4.1 is the last time Eve's name will appear anywhere in the Old Testament. She will always be referred to as the mother of or the wife of. Eve's name will not appear again in the Old Testament. It will be mentioned in the New Testament. Chapter 4 is focused on Cain, the seed of Cain, the rebellion of Cain, and Moses, the author of Genesis, is taking great pains to emphasize the development of the seed motif and the prophesied battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So that is why the man-child came, has come by the help of the Lord, and Abel, his brother, is born. There's very little mention of Abel, very little focus on him, because Cain is really the focus of what is going to play out in this section of the narrative. So at this point, with the birth of Cain and the birth of Abel, there's great hope expressed immediately after the fall, in that they did not die. God was faithful to his promise, to his command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He has blessed them and faithful even though they have disregarded his only command in the garden, they have sinned and have been expelled from the garden. So number two in the outline is the sons contrasted. We see the inauguration of the first family. Now we're going to see the contrasting differences, experiences, styles, types, everything in these two sons. The latter part of verse two. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So the contrast actually begins in verse 1 with the two sons, Eve telling us that Cain was born with the help of the Lord. No comment on the birth of Abel, only that he was Cain's brother. The name Abel means breath and is a clue to the brevity of his life as well as the brevity of life that man would experience outside of the garden. Now, if you remember this, the prohibition that God gave was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was no such prohibition of eating from the tree of life, which means that theoretically had Adam and Eve not been expelled from the garden and had eaten from the tree of life, they could have lived forever. There's no prohibition against the tree of life, only against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now with their expulsion from the garden and the birth of Abel, it's a clue as to the brevity of his life and the brevity of life outside of the garden because they have been, they have been banished from the ability to take and eat from the tree of life, which is why God kicked them out of the garden, placed the cherubim there with a flaming sword to protect the garden from entrance by Cain and by Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and all other humankind. So Cain's name means acquired or gotten. Eve acquired or got a child from the Lord. It does not mean that she thought less of Abel, but it is Moses' way of focusing on Cain and his role in the battle between the two seeds, the seed of the serpent and then the seed of the woman. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer. This vocational description also provides the setting for what is to follow. So in the contrast of the sons, what is hinted at in their names continues now in a contrast in letter A, their worship.
Verse 3 and verse 4a. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part brought also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portion. So the phrase there, so it came about in the course of time, is an indeterminate amount of time. Surely there's been some time that has passed from the birth of Cain and Abel to this point where there's now a mention of an offering that is brought before the Lord. So it is most likely that they are young adults. They're probably latter teens. We can only speculate as to how old they would actually be. They're not old enough to yet have their own family, but they are old enough to independently be responsible in their work and this important process of bringing an offering to the Lord. So here we learn that at some point, God has instructed that there be an offering made to Him as the Lord God. It should be presented to Him, and it's possible that they're only following the example of Adam, but we are told of any offering that Adam would have made. And so it seems logical that as as an extension of their expulsion from the garden because of their sin, that some form of offering was required. It was given from God to them, although Scripture does not record it. And part of the hint that that is, in fact, what has happened, is the word that is used for offering here, minka, is the same word for offering that is used in Exodus and and Leviticus as God is giving the regulations for the ceremonial process that Israel is to follow. So we are told in Scripture about the mandate for this offering, but its inclusion here does at least two things. Number one, it provides the subject matter that surrounds the eventual murder that takes place. And two, it provides a contrast between the two sons, their heart and their character, their love for and obedience to God, and the honesty and how they came before the Lord and worshipped Him in the presentation of their offerings. Now, the text does not provide this information, but it's highly likely that Adam had explained to them why there was a need for the offering. So thinking about that, although it doesn't tell us what Adam passed on, they were probably told of this past life in the garden, of the serpent's temptation, of their egregious and despicable sin, of the cherubim with the flaming sword being placed at an entrance of the garden to protect and to keep them out. It's even possible that although they were cast to the east of Eden, that they were able to travel near enough to the garden to see it, to gaze upon it, and perhaps even see the cherubim there with the flaming sword that protect the entrance and was put there to keep them out. Could you imagine such a thing? Having been in this in this incredible lush garden tabernacle experience with all the food they could ever want, with an intimate fellowship of God, being expelled from that and now experiencing life on the outside, I think I would want to go back and gaze upon and go, what a stupid, stupid man I was. Can you imagine what it is we, what it is we've given up and what we've exchanged that for? So although the scripture doesn't tell us that, it's possible that they even 
went back to the area of the Garden of Eden and could look upon it and remember what it was that they had lost. So as they bring their offerings to the Lord, Cain's offering is described as brought an offering. Abel's offering is described as firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. Now, if we were to read this in a vacuum, not knowing any of the rest of Scripture, we might not recognize that there's a very significant difference in the two offerings that were presented to the Lord. From this description, it appears that Cain just brought something, while Abel brought what was required, the best of the best, and that which was first. So as you fast forward... Some 15, 1600 years or longer, I didn't actually look at the timeline, perhaps longer, forgive me if I'm wrong. As you fast forward and look at the sacrificial system, God was never, ever, ever pleased with the quantity of an offering. God was always pleased with the first fruit, the sacrificial, faith-filled offering that is descriptive of what we find here in Abel's offering as the firstlings of the flock and their fat portions. In these two professions, sometimes the first fruit is all that will come because of disease or drought or death, and a further harvest could never ever be guaranteed because of these unpredictable factors. So to bring of the first fruit is a test of faith, and it is an offering of hope in the faithfulness and in the provision of God. So there is an incredible contrast between the quality of the offerings that were brought by both Cain and by Abel. Abel flourished with his offering. Cain did not. Abel was generous and obedient. Cain was not. And again, this sets the stage for the ensuing conflict that's going to play out in a contrast between these two sons. So we see a contrast of their worship, but there is also a contrast in their acceptance. Verse 4b and 5a would say, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So as you look at this and you begin to look at what some of the commentaries think this might mean, there's a couple of different options. And one of the key options that is here is that there's a distinction between the quality of the offerings. And what they mean by that is that a blood offering is superior to a grain offering. And therefore, that blood offering made Abel's offering more acceptable to God than did Cain's. The problem is, that is not supported anywhere in Scripture. In fact, it contrasts and contradicts the eventual ceremonial regulations that were given to the nation of Israel. It is that, that line of thinking is inconsistent with the Scripture because Scripture honors and requires both types of offerings. For example, we see in Leviticus 2.1, Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and they shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. 
Likewise, in Leviticus 6.12, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall lay out the burnt offerings on it and offer up and smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. So if there was a distinction between a blood offering and a grain offering, it isn't apparent anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, the rest of Scripture and the ceremonial regulations that were required for the nation of Israel contradict that line of thinking. The contrast of the content of the offering is the reason for the, for the difference in how they were accepted by the Lord. Abel was careful about his offering. Cain was indifferent. Abel gave God the pick of the flock and Cain brought something that was thoroughly inconsequential. The difference was that of heart attitude. Cain came came before God on his own self-prescribed terms, but Abel came to God on God's terms. The New Testament fleshes out the contrast in the heart of worship reflected in these two offerings, as is stated in Hebrews 11.4, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Abel's sacrificial faith-filled offering was credited to him as righteousness. And the implication here from the writer of Hebrews is that Cain's was anything but. We get an insight into that distinction in 1 John 3.12 where it says, in the description of loving one another, we are to love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for that, for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So there is a contrast in the heart between Cain and Abel, which is reflected in the offering brought before the Lord by Cain and Abel. Cain was seen as evil and unrighteous and self-prescribed worship and offering, where Abel was the opposite. He was Righteous, he was faithful, and he gave sacrificially of the first fruits of the flock. It is for these reasons that God rejected Abel, excuse me, that God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. It had nothing to do with the blood offering versus a grain offering. So now we look at number three in the outline, and that is Cain's response to the rejection of his offering at the hands of God. Verse 5b, the last part of verse 5. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So what we don't really know is how long Cain and Abel had been bringing offerings to the Lord. It's unlikely that this is the very first offering. It could be. We really don't know. We don't know the details about the instruction given to them, passed on by Adam, as it related to the offerings. But here we find Cain's response to the rejection of his offering at the hands of God. Letter A, it is a response of anger. The phrase here is very angry, and it literally means it burned to Cain exceedingly. Cain was seething with anger because God had the audacity to reject his offering. Think about that. 
What does it say about the heart, about the character of Cain that he would be seething with anger that God would reject his offering? Cain came to God on his own terms in his own self-righteousness and was deceived into believing that God should be satisfied with any offering that Cain was going to bring to him. To give God the best of the best was an insult to Cain and not really necessary. Assuming Cain had thoughts like that, where do you think those suggestions might have come from? Sounds very much like what took place in the garden when the serpent tempted Eve, doesn't it? God did not say. God will not do. God should be pleased with whatever you bring because after all, Cain, you are a great farmer. Everything you give is a sacrifice to yourself. God isn't going to reject it. God isn't going to be displeased. And if He does, He's just holding you back. He's never able to be pleased. You need to go out on your own, kind of like I did. So Cain is exceedingly angry, seething with anger, and as a result of this rejection of his offering, his countenance has fallen. Now the fallen countenance is not describing depression as our modern vocabulary might suggest us to think that this is what it means. But the fallen countenance or the downcast face is a way of describing Cain's rejection of God's rejection. Think about that. So Cain brings the offering and God says, no, 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 not so fast, my friend. I do not accept that offering. I reject it. Cain doesn't look at God in humility or in sadness. He's seething with anger and rejects God's rejection by looking down and not looking at the face of God. So approval is described in Scripture as acceptance in a person's face. So this example for us is fleshed out for for us in Genesis chapter 33. Jacob and Esau, brothers at odds. And Esau, Jacob comes to Esau with an offering of all these, all this flock and all these other things. And this receptance, excuse me, this acceptance, this receptivity of the gift is reflected by the face of Esau. So it says in Genesis 33, 33, 10, Jacob said, no, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. So this idea of looking face to face is an indication of acceptance. It indicates reception. And to not receive favorably means to not see the face. Why? Because the face looks down or it turns away. And that reflects a rejection of whatever has been said, whatever has been done. And here... Cain is rejecting God's rejection of his righteous verdict. In a sense, what Cain is saying is, I cannot believe that you are rejecting my offering. I don't agree with you. I am rejecting your rejection. And I choose not to listen to what it is you're going to say to me. 
it is a stance that might go, really? You're going to do that? You're going to reject my offering? How dare you do such a thing? Again, this is what is hinted at. It is what is suggested in the Hebrew grammar and stylistic literary structure. So Cain's reaction to God's rejection is to be seething with anger and let her be not repentance. He doesn't hear a thing that God is about to say. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? God offers Cain the opportunity to re-examine why his offering was rejected. God says, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? In other words, why are you surprised that I did not accept your offering when you knew it was not what was required? Think about that. Assuming Cain knew what the requirements of the offering was, and he willingly chose not to meet those requirements, God is saying, why are you surprised that I wouldn't accept this when you knew what it was I had required? It's like a teacher saying, why are you mad at me that you failed the test when you did nothing but provide wrong answers? Why are you mad at me? This is the same type of inquiry God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden when he knew that they had sinned, and he comes and says, where are you? Did you eat of the tree? What did you do? God's inquiry is is designed to bring about confession and repentance. It is not a scolding looking for an opportunity to punish. That's not God's intent at all. He is inquiring in such a way as to bring about a confession and repentance where Cain would say, yeah, you're right, God. I dropped the ball. I didn't do what I know I'm supposed to do. Let me fix that. Let me bring to you another offering. So at this point, God issues encouragement. He says in verse 7a, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? This is the grace of God giving Cain another chance to make the offering right. What do we call it when God gives us another chance? It's grace. It is mercy. What is our response to that offer of grace and mercy? It is repentance from the error of our way. If we obey and do what is right, then God will be pleased with our response. And so he says to Cain, if you obey and do what is right, won't your face be lifted up with joy in knowing that you have pleased me, knowing that you have done well? It's a rhetorical question that isn't designed to elicit an answer from Cain. It is only designed to elicit a heart change where Cain would recognize his error and then repent of it. But as quickly as God offers this encouragement, he also extends a warning in the latter part of verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So the warning is very clear. If you do not do well, if you do not repent and obey, 
Sin is ready to take control of you. It wants to rule you. It wants to dominate your life. But you must choose to master it or it will master you. God personified sin as a beast crouching at the door, ready to pounce, ready to dominate, ready to take control, very similarly to the way it's described for us in the Gospel of John, that he is like, or excuse me, Peter, that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, as we know, Cain did not respond well. He did not repent. And his ultimate rejection of God was found in what he did next. He did not repent, but he murdered. Verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Well, we can only imagine how this conversation went. The Scripture doesn't say. We can speculate. We can make some guesses, some of them educated, some probably not so educated. But it's quite possible that there's already quite a bit of animosity between the two because of the difference in the character, the faith, and the obedience that is seen in this narrative that probably has been taking place throughout all of the siblings' lives. So rather than being a righteous, faithful brother like Abel, Cain is reflecting his rebellion, his self-rule, his desire to do his own thing. And so here in the first family, repentance is rejected, the grace of God is ignored, and Cain kills his little brother. Did Abel say, I told you that I told you that your offerings were no good? I told you that this is rebellion. I told you, I told you, didn't you know? Don't you know? We don't know what the conversation is. Whatever it was, Cain didn't want to hear it. And rather than recognizing the error of his way, he seeks to silence silence another critic, another voice of truth, and he kills his brother. Imagine the pain of Eve being multiplied to her as prophesied of the increase of pain and child-bearing and child-rearing as she discovers that her eldest has killed her youngest. Imagine Adam's thoughts as the sweat of his face is soaked up in the ground, much like the ground soaked up the shed blood of his son Abel at the hands of his son Cain. The curse of the fall had become incredibly personal and they felt it every hour of every day. And it is a foreshadowing of the depth and completeness of sin that is going to invade and permeate all of mankind. You and I live today under the curse of the fall. I live today in a constant presence of sin. Even though God has become sin... We still live in its presence. We are still drawn by what it has to offer. After all, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, right? 
So we must be aware of the powerful lure of sin within us, of sin's desire to master us, to rule over and dominate us just as it did Cain. And I would imagine that as has come to my mind, has also come to your mind, the words of James. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one of you, each one of us, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Literally, in the lives of Cain and Abel, spiritually for them as well as for us. And so the first family is very quickly marred by an unspeakable horror, unspeakable crime, fratricide, where a sibling kills a sibling. It's a clue that life outside the garden would never, ever, ever be the same. And very, very quickly, man is spiraling into a cesspool of sin and filth that will unfold for us in the pages of Genesis in just unimaginable ways. It's just shocking that in the face of the offer of grace and mercy, of repentance and obedience, man consistently chooses to reject it. To do his own thing, to go his own way, to live his own life. And what we say is, who are you, God, to tell me how to think, how to live, 